This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. We're back with a program favorite, Jim McGregor. Jim, for those of you unfamiliar with him, has a sage quality about him. China has been his stomping ground for more than 30 years, and he brings to our conversations the thing we appreciate the most, perspective. To truly understand China is to witness the country through the long arc of history. It's as consistent as it is surprising. In certain instances, it takes a crisis to reveal the underbelly of a nation steeped in secrecy. This time, the crisis came in the form of the coronavirus, striking at the heart of China's Hubei province and resulting in the lockdown of Wuhan, one of the country's most essential industrial centers. As I record this, the number of infected has skyrocketed to more than 20,000 people in less than two weeks. Wuhan remains the epicenter of the outbreak, but cases are spreading throughout China and the world, with more than 25 countries reporting confirmed cases. The timing of the virus is cause for concern as well. By the time news of the epidemic emerged, the Chinese population was on the move for the Chinese New Year season. An estimated 3 billion trips were booked by people returning home for the holidays. 3 billion! By comparison, in the U.S. over the Christmas holidays, only 116 million Americans hit the road. How this seasonal migration might accelerate the spread of the coronavirus has yet to be seen, but probability is high and somewhat frightening. The economic impact on China and the rest of the world, for that matter, has also raised concerns. Because of an overweighted dependency on China for manufactured goods, any slowdown on the mainland will most assuredly have an impact on the global economy. Economists say China's growth could slip from 6.1 to 5.6% in 2020 because of the outbreak, and by extension, trimming 0.2% off global economic growth. Not an attractive prospect when staring down the barrel of a possible recession later this year or early next. But lest we become mired in gloom and doom, let's hear what Jim has to say. I caught up with him by phone, having just made his Chinese New Year migration back to Duluth, Minnesota. How are you? I'm good. I'm kind of glad to be out of China right now. (laughs) Your timing's impeccable. Yeah, well, Grady, my son, has been there. He just left yesterday from Kunming. I was urging him to get the heck out. You know, I was wondering if they're going to start to cancel flights or, you know, delay or things of this sort. Are are people starting to make the move to get out? Is there there an exodus? Um, I think a lot of people were gone for Chinese New Year's. The question is, when do they go back among the foreigners? Um, Yeah, I think people that can get out are getting out uh, because, you know, nobody trusts the government's information. Even if the government is being straight with people, they don't. They're not going to believe it. Yeah, I guess that's always been the case. Although it does feel like they're getting some uh, kudos for responding at least more quickly than they did to SARS. Isn't isn't that true? Oh, definitely. I think the Wuhan government's looking pretty bad, and the central government is coming into the rescue. And even uh, on WeChat groups, I'm on people are complimenting the, the, the central government. But then the Wuhan guys go, well, you know, they say, well, you know, we couldn't act because we had to, we had to, you know, check with the central government or, you know, party before we could do anything, which, you know, this all goes to the current structure of the Chinese government where all the decisions are made by a small group and sometimes one man at the top, everybody's afraid to act and, and do things. 
Yeah. But but they did push it to the top, at least. And and yes, uh, back down the chain of command. I, I get it. But I, I was reading an article earlier today or yesterday, I can't recall, saying no other country in the world, frankly, might have been able to respond as quickly and effectively as China has just by virtue of its system. I mean, do you buy that or no? Oh, of course. Of course. Who else can, who else can you know, quarantine 60 million people? Yeah. It, bingo. <laughs> That's... I mean, I even read that there's some of the, out, the some of the outlying areas beyond the cities that are quarantined. Um, the government's out there with front end front end diggers uh, cutting off the road so people can't drive across. Seriously, so they are putting up roadblocks. They are keeping people not not just extending the Chinese New Year holiday, but but literally cutting off transportation links. Yeah, yeah, uh, to uh, Wuhan and the cities around there. So, so listen, what I thought we could do, um, it's just a pleasure to catch up again, and I always love these conversations, but um, maybe just quickly, just a look back and then a look forward. We have to talk about trade. Uh, just, just, just the economic repercussions of the U.S.-China trade war are evident, but I'm just wondering, uh, what's your take? Is there anything, uh, did anything at all uh, good come from the recent period of trade unrest? Um, uh, were, were there some positive uh, results in, in any, you know, couch it any way you wish? Well, yeah. Uh, look, the, the the wording of the agreement, um, there are specifics on uh, protection of intellectual property, no forced tech transfer, um, openings for financial services. There's a number of things that if China sticks to them, will move things in a good direction. But in general, this whole trade battle has been, uh, uh, a friend in Washington described the administration to me as actions driven by emotions without a strategy. You know, it's bounced around so much. And you've got, you know, some people in the administration look at China as Japan, you know, and, and, and we're doing a managed mercantilist trade agreement with them, like we did with Japan on quotas on chips and cars back in the Reagan administration. Mm. Others look at it as Iran, uh, you know, a, a place that needs to be, you know, that needs to be crushed or, you know, that needs to be taken down. And others look at it as the Soviet Union. And um, it'd be good if they looked at it as China because it's different than anything we've ever faced before. And the U.S. has to, you know, has to deal with it differently. We're not, this is not the Cold War. This isn't a, a battle between ideologies. This is a, a struggle between two development models. China has a different development model, and it's a very big economy. We got to figure out how to deal with that. It, it did feel early on, Jim, like they were borrowing pages from history to address some of these trade inconsistencies or, or incongruity incongruencies. But it, but then I'm I'm just wondering, did, did they start to adjust? Did the Trump administration and and his trade negotiators learn anything over the past three years that allow them to make some marginal adjustments to be, if you will, more effective? Well, uh, I don't fault Lighthizer. I mean, Lighthizer does have a somewhat of a view of China being Japan, because that's his past experience in trade negotiations. But if he had been left on his own to have, his, to, have to have a consistent strategy, he would have done much better. I don't think he was all, all for all these steel tariffs and going after the Europeans and all of this. Well, we should have had all these people as allies. Um, you know, I think he was, of course, for tariffs to uh, get China's attention. But we've just been, you know, once a strategy gets going, then 
Trump will come up with something else and a few tweets will push in a different direction. It was hard to, uh, you know, how does China negotiate with that? How do they figure out who they're dealing with? And, and you know, the big picture of this is the, the world has changed and we have woken China up um, to double down, triple down, quadruple down on its plans to decouple from America mm. and to have, get yeah. rid of any dependency it has on America. And as one Chinese official said to me, be careful uh, if you, uh, you know, if you get another country to realize that they're dependent on you and they got to invest a lot of money to get away from you. Yeah. You know, I've, I've I've been lucky lately. I've been around a number of retired senior Chinese officials, and also I've had some high-level access in Washington. And boy, it's a tale of two, tale of two worlds. They're completely on different pages. Yeah, and and there are, I mean, as you point out, some major uh, investment that's going on by China uh, just to, to detach itself or to upgrade its semiconductor sector, to look at the deep techs uh, areas. I, I read recently they, they're investing something in the range of $440 billion a year, which is more in technology, which is more than all of Europe combined, which is just shocking. And and even the internet companies, what is it, nine of the 20 largest internet companies in the world are, are, are Chinese? Is, 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 so, so there's no doubt about it that it's... It's coming into its own, and it does feel like you know you back that dog into the corner, and it's going to start to bark pretty loud, and that's what seems to be happening right now. Uh, look, China, you know, China believes that, and if you listen to some of the rhetoric coming out of Washington, that our goal is to undermine the Communist Party and to contain China. Those two things, and that's what China now firmly believes, and so they are pushing back. Now, look, I. This problem was caused by China. You know, China agreed to do a lot of things in the WTO, and I really think that um, in some ways um, the American establishment, business and government, feels betrayed. You know, that uh, you know, China got into the WTO with our help. Um, we, we had um, good intentions. And then they ate our economic lunch by uh, what some are calling shallow globalization. China globalizes as much as it needs to for its own good, but doesn't go beyond that. And that's how it handled the WTO, where the WTO worked for China. They went along when they didn't work and pretended it didn't exist. And uh, so the where we got today was really caused by China overreaching, um, but we're not doing a very good job at going back at it because, you know, America's good at, at not good at defense. We're pretty good at offense. So instead of, uh, you know, all these defensive moves, we should be competing with China. We should be taking this as a Sputnik moment. We should be investing in in um, technology and science and technology. And we need that government funding. We should be giving green cards to anybody who gets a Ph.D. in the hard sciences. Um, let's compete. If China has a 1,000-talent program, let's have a 10,000-talent program in America. Let's use our, our strengths to compete instead of hunkering down and, 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 and trying to put up a fence. But it's not, Jim. It's not. I mean, those aren't the responses. So in, in, in lieu of that, what, what, what's, the, what's the next best strategy? But that's not happening. The U.S. isn't making these counter moves in order to compete, you know, set the, uh, create the incentives in order to generate, uh, you know, a, a real push towards technology superiority. It feels like we're just resigned to hold on to what we have, you know, wrap the knuckles of China every time it violates, uh, declare ourselves as the giants and hope that that remains true. It doesn't feel to me as if, you know, those types of policy decisions are being made to compete. Uh, and, and, and therefore, you know, what's left? What's the, the fallback strategy uh, if those types of things aren't happening? Um, 
Well, I think uh, American voters need to bring in a new government. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm, I, I can see that. That, that, seemed, that works for me. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. we, we, have, we, we just have to compete. Um, let, in fact, let me, um, I've, been, I've been looking at uh, some of the Cold War stuff just, you know, for comparison. Let me, let me read you something from, you know, remember uh, George Kennan in 1946, he wrote what was known as a long telegram. Yeah, of course. Later became the, became the whole philosophy for containment. Let me just read a sentence C- out of... Containing uh, Soviet uh, Union. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, he goes, the U.S. needs to create among the peoples of the world generally the impression of a country which knows what it wants, which is coping successfully with the problems of its internal life, and the responsibilities of world power, and which has a spiritual vitality capable of holding its own among the major ideological currents of the time. I would, I would just read that back to our government. Why don't we try that? Yeah. We've we got to get our, 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 our own stuff together. And look, I'm no apologist for China. China's got a lot of problems, um, and they, you know, they do a lot of things that I don't agree with. But, you know, they have a plan and they're moving ahead and they're focused. We need to have a plan. We need to be focused and we need to move ahead and, and compete because we're pretty good at offense. I think we can compete. Mm. If, if 2019 was the, um, the year of trade tensions, uh, what other uh, issues are afoot? How is the game shifting? Um, if, 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 in fact, trade fades from the limelight, might other issues like China tech investment in the U.S. or U.S. crackdown on Chinese counterfeits take over? What do you anticipate could be other issues that, that uh, raise their head in, in 2020? Well, I think what's going is already happening and is going to accelerate in 2020 is American companies are finding way, going to find ways around the restrictions put in by the U.S. government because they can't afford not to be in the China market. You know, one-third of global economic growth is, is, comes from China, and that's larger than the U.S., Europe, uh, and Japan combined. Mm. Uh, and when it comes to technology, America's technology companies, our best technology companies, have the biggest market share in China because China can't do it yet. Mm. You know, Qualcomm, two-thirds of its chips, uh, Micron, almost 60%, uh, Broadcom, 50%. Um, so if they can't sell to China, if they can't sell to Chinese companies, um, then that will be taken over by the Japanese and Koreans and others. And so they're finding their way around. It's, you know, they're, we're talking about, you know, there are companies that are moving manufacturing offshore, but they're, what's going on among the top companies is onshoring. They're bringing more of their supply chain in. And they're, in some cases, they're moving technology out of the United States so that it's not deemed to be American technology, so they can sell it in China. There's a big unintended consequence of this trade war, the way it's been carried out. Well, that's really interesting. So they're end-rounding some of the politics and hoping that uh, they can just uh, keep their head down while, uh, while the, the, the direct U.S.-China issues continue to percolate. Well, they have no choice. I mean, I think the, you know, one of the problems is, and this isn't the Trump administration's problem, is we've done too much too late. You know, if we were going to have this fight, we should have had it 10 years ago. I mean, the, the, the Chinese, uh, you know, senior Chinese officials, retired Chinese officials I was around recently are very confident. They're saying things like this battle was inevitable. The U.S. in the past could tolerate our, the differences in our systems. But now that China's more powerful, they can't. Uh, so we may as well have this battle now. We're, we're ready for it. Um, 
And, uh, you know, they say things, you know, we are what we are, and countries, including the U.S., will have to decide where they fit in with us. They're feeling, you know, very, very confident, and they're talking about re-globalizing, not de-globalizing. And, um, you know, what I'm seeing foreign companies do is they're onshoring. They're bringing more stuff into China. So uh, it's a very mixed picture. And, and again, the U.S. needed to push back on China. Um I'm concerned that this pushback is going to, we're going to look, in 10 years, we're going to look back and we're going to say that's when we really started destroying our own technology sector. So, so Jim, you're saying it's kind of business as usual. I mean, while all the bravado uh, is carried on at at the higher echelon, you've got uh, companies making good investment decisions in the interest of their, you know, their supply chains and their customers. Is is how, how, at what point do you think that that's going to become uh, a problem? And do you anticipate the U.S. government cracking down on U.S. tech companies and saying, no, we're going to, we're going to circumvent or block well then what happens when the u.s stock market crashes <laughs> well there it is you know, these, these, these are listed companies and they're america's um, you know their biggest and most powerful and most important technology companies if all of a sudden they lose 50 percent of their sales what, what's going to happen mm. there's always a workaround when it comes to business when america had high business taxes what happened? Everybody bought an Irish company and, and registered themselves as Irish. Right. Well, this is you know this is now happening in a, in a technology way, and there's there's really no way around it. If you're a CEO, your job in our system is to make money for shareholders, and, and full stop. It's not to take care of the United States, even if you're patriotic. If we want to change our system, we better figure that out. But we're facing. Um, here's the whole thing. We're facing a, you know, a different development model that is very threatening um, to us because of its advantages of companies not having to make money and all the state subsidies that are involved, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we've got to figure out how we compete against that model and how we bottle up that model where, where we can. But um, if we try to, if we, if we think we're going to bring down the Chinese economy, we, we, we should wake up. We're not going to be able to do that. You know, for for the longest time, um, you know, China, when it came to its its technology, its digital economy, people said, "Well, it's it's you know, it's the big firewall. We we can't get through it, and therefore let them do their thing, and uh, we'll just see how it goes on." Now it feels like in the last two or three years that you know, valued at something in the range of three trillion dollars, it's it's one of the most innovative digital economies on earth. You know, going cashless faster than you can blink. Um, it, it, it for any you know tech, particularly a business to consumer uh, tech company, you've got to be there to be party or participating in any way you can, it would seem to me, because they're just leapfrogging ahead of what we're seeing in Europe and, and, and North America. At least that's my impression. Is, is Would you share that? Oh, yeah. I mean, China is very good at, at, you know, applying technology to business models. And they've done some very innovative stuff. And even if the U.S. is blocking them, um, China's moving very fast in other parts of the world. I had a VC the other day tell me about um, phone apps on phones in India. 47% of the apps on phones in India now are Chinese, and that's up from 14% a year earlier. They, you know, they're rocketing ahead in, 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 in other countries. And, and, and that's just the sophistication of, of the app, the ability to build a better app. That's it. It's just they're, they're beating, they're winning. It's not a market-specific game. It's like if you've got the technologies and the whiz-bang to do it, uh, anyone's going to buy it. 
Well, and, they, and they're just very good at, at, at you know, coming up with business models based on even the technology of other people. Mm. And pro- you know, one of the reasons is they, you know, because they don't have, um, you know, they didn't have all these established systems of credit cards and other things that we've had. Um, and so they had to leapfrog, you know, whether it's leapfrogging from landlines to mobile phones before or, or, and wider than everybody else or to, you know, online payment because they didn't have a decent offline payment system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, again, I don't want to make China sound like it is, you know, that it is this Goliath that, you know, we all it's going to bring us all down. America just has to compete. We can compete. I mean, we still have, you know, a, a quarter of the PhDs in the U.S. are Chinese. We mm. better make sure we don't scare them away, which I think we're doing a bit of right now. We just got to we got to get a focus on ourselves. Well, let's talk about uh, the economy a little bit. I mean, and, and, and two implications. One is it's been said for many years, China is due for a recession, it's slowing, there are some uh, structural challenges they're facing, the banking system, uh, you name it. Um, what what are your expectations in 2020? Uh, and of course, overlay that with what's going on with the coronavirus and, and, and what are the eco- economic implications of that? Any thoughts? Well, I mean, China, you know, if you're one of the things that was startling for me in Washington is across the board, people think that, uh, you know, that we've almost got the Chinese economy down on its knees through this trade war. They think we've really, really hit China hard, and that is, that is not the case. Yeah, it, it, it's taken a hit, but you know, when when the four biggest banks are basically the finance ministry, you know, China has a lot of controls. We don't. Hmm. I think going ahead in in, in the short term in, in 2020 and 2021. I think the government will be able to move things ahead. Remember, 2021 is the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party. There's no way they're going to allow a big downturn. And 2020 is the end of the last five-year plan. She, you know, he promised that he would double GDP from when he came in. And so they got to keep goosing it to do that. Um, you know, they, the thing about the, the, the Chinese leadership is not deluded about their own numbers. They know where their problems are, and they don't always solve them the best way. But they're they're very aware of it, um, and so they don't they don't take measures that are going to put them in a r- real bad position. They're mm. just they're always balancing things back and forth, and sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. But they, I I've been there thirty years. So far, they haven't gotten it wrong enough for the economy to take a big tumble. Now, of course, this canor uh, this. Uh, coronavirus and and the trade war and all this stuff mounting up is is, is pretty worrisome but I don't you, you, you never I've never seen anybody make money betting against China you know uh, even back when I was a reporter in the early 90s and predicting things were going to go to hell well I wasn't right then either you know <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I can't go along with uh, the, you know, the, the demise of Chinese economy. What is uh, to what degree will China be a subject for the politicians in this election year in the U.S.? Uh, well, you remember the Democrats are traditionally the the, uh, the a party that's tough on trade, and the Republicans were pro-trade, and now we've got a Republican party that's anti-trade, and the Democrats that uh, I don't I don't think they're going to flip around and be uh, pro-trade. Uh, so I think it's I think China's going to be a it, it, it's been creeping in over the last few elections to get become more and more a, a center part of the argument. Um, I think it will be part of the argument and there'll be noise. But again, it's it's always it's always domestic and it's always about the domestic economy. And, mm. and then we this one is different because we've got a, a president who so many people 
just fine to be, you know, an outlier who yeah. is so different than anybody in the job before. His personality is going to dominate a lot of what the election's about, I think, and who he is. Yeah, it just brought me back to what you were saying earlier in the conversation about the Cold War and, and to the degree that uh, Soviet Union became this looming force in the world. Well, cl- clearly Nixon leveraged that to his advantage and the whole Vietnam War and everything else that flowed from it. And uh, and, and I'm just wondering if, if it could be an equal opportunity, if you will, for politicians in the U.S. to play that blame game or raise the fear or, say, divert attention from their own incompetencies by pointing to China to say, once again, they're stealing your jobs or stealing your technology or, you know, stealing your wives, whatever they're doing. I don't know. I mean, it just seems to me like we see we, we have these moments uh, where there's the, the boogeyman that, that steps in and it becomes a great political, uh, uh, you know, uh, weight uh, that, and, and something that people use against uh, or in defense of their own inabilities. Do, do, you, do you suspect that there might be a similar wave in that direction or, or, or no? Is there just so much, <laughs> so much chaos in the domestic market? They'll stick there. Well, I think we've got a lot of boogeyman out there. We've got Putin and the Soviets. You know, we've got Iran. We've got China. I think they'll all play their role in the election, depending on who the candidates are and what's in the news. But they're all going to be they're all going to be bad guys. Mm. You know, you you bring up the Cold War again. I just want to bring up one other point. I mean, the U.S. strategy during the Cold War um, was, you know, that the U.S. had to be strong to take them on. But eventually that the, the Soviet system would fall because of its own weaknesses in its system. Its system was deeply flawed, and so it would fall. Um, I worry that we have that same view with the Chinese, uh. and I, I don't think that's the case. We better not you know, think that their systems, you know, if we push them, their system's got these weaknesses, and then, then it'll crack apart. That is not going to be the case. You know, the, the, the Chinese system works pretty well for China right now, whether you like it or not. Um, you know, uh, Sidney Rittenberg, uh, may he rest in peace, said to me before he died, he said, you know, I hate to say this, but the Chinese system's working better for China right now than the American system's working for America, and there's some truth to that. There isn't. Um, and that's not a value judgment, it's just, it's just a fact. No, there is indeed, and I, I guess uh, still, uh, that, I guess that's why I raise it as, as, a, as an issue for politics, because uh, I, my feeling is the average American voter really isn't across that. They still have images of China as being something from the past, a communist state, uh, you know, living and working in the rice fields, but they, they just don't fully... And, and if anything, there are trade incongruencies, and that's a bad thing, uh, so let's straighten that out. But, but just the dynamism of that market, uh, in spite of its system, I think is a continual shocker for me and so many others. Um, and, and it doesn't feel like that message is trickling through, and therefore the threat is truly perceived. It's kind of like you know China and, China and climate change. It's out there somewhere. We know it might be something we have to contend with, but we're not going to face it right now, and therefore let's put our heads down and continue to uh, do our nine to five and come home to the family. Well, you know, Obama got beat up for trying to have a more humble America and to say, you know, America exceptionalism. We've got this thing, this, you know, this notion of exceptionalism that we're exceptional and we're better than everybody else and our system is superior and everybody needs our system. Well, China has its own exceptionalism. Maybe not that everybody needs their system, but that, that they are an exceptional country that's way ahead of everybody else. We both need to kind of get over ourselves and and, and, and deal with the reality of if these two countries don't get along and you know, American politicians, they're, 
there, you know, this is, look, the quality of American politicians has dropped like a rock in the last 20 years. Um, because, you know, being a senator or a congressman is a crappy job. You spend all your time raising money. You can't get anything done. If you try to get something done, there's going to be some pack that knocks you off. So you're, you're getting, instead of getting the person who used to make, you know, somebody that was a professor or made money and then wanted to contribute to the country, now you're getting a guy that couldn't get a job and he joins a Tea Party, makes a lot of noise and gets to Congress and decides he wants to destroy government. <laughs> You, we're, you we're, paint a rosy picture, Jim. Yes. A lot of self-destruction going on here that yeah. we're pasting onto China. Yeah, which I guess is why you went home to Duluth to see it, you know, from the front lines. Is that what you're doing? Is that where the new story is being laid out? It's Duluth? It's the back country? It's what American politics unwinding, and you're there to see it. Is, is that what you're doing now? China is passe? <laughs> well, you will remember that I was a congressional reporter during the Reagan administration. <laughs> When Tip, Tip O'Neill was speaker and Bob Dole was Senate Majority Leader, um, and uh, you know members of Congress then there was some there was some real impressive people. I watched a congressman from from uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, do immigration reform because it was the right thing to do and needed to be done. And that he he and you know he and Mazzoli and Simpson uh, from Wyoming did it together. Um, it could never happen today. Our system is broken. It doesn't, you know, we, we're unable to solve our biggest problems um, because of where we've gone in our politics. Yeah, exactly. We that, have to get our, our act together. That foreign notion of bipartisanship. I don't think that word's even used in, in uh, Washington these days, if I'm not mistaken. Look, I'm, uh, I've been offshore for 30 years. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Vietnam veteran. I'm very patriotic. And you get more patriotic if you sit offshore is I'm sitting there watching us anticipate our strengths by the day, hmm. uh, where I see other countries overcoming their weaknesses. Uh, you know, this is we got to we, we got to wake up and take care of ourselves. Yeah. And China, you know, maybe China's doing us a favor by by uh, the way it's behaving and and how it's moving ahead and all these big plans it has. Um, maybe it's doing us a favor to wake us up to compete. I hope that I hope that is a result of this. Well, I mean that—that's what I keep waiting for—is—is is the you know the the contemporary Sputnik moment. When when are we going to decide there's a race and it's real and it looks like this and this is what the goal is and maybe it's just less tangible. I mean uh, because technology is ubi- ubiquitous and therefore how do you kind of put your finger on something and say that's the goal, that's the end game? Um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just you know maybe we don't respond as people to symbols and metaphors the way we once did. Uh, but I I am constantly shocked and surprised. At how let how how um, you know regressive we are versus progressive, given all we've learned, and also how irresponsive we are to the way that the world is shifting at a time when we should have more access to insights and information about the world than ever before. It's kind of ironic on multiple levels. So, uh, <laughs> you know, what is it going to take? You know, is is it going to take this just this uh, literally the old style war needs to break out in order for people to rally? Um, it seems pretty self evident to me that we've got to move on something. But but I don't know. I, I don't I don't feel it either, Jim. I just don't. Well, the, the good news is we have elections, and um, you know let, let's let's hope that um, you know that we can transform because there's a lot you know there's a lot of people in Washington who kind of get it and the business community gets it, but it's not being reflected in our political actions these days. Yeah. Again, um, you know, you've got to give the Trump administration credit for pushing back because, um, you know, uh, Obama was 
regard to China, and so was uh, W, because W was focused on terrorism, and Obama was focused on climate change and, and you know, reducing uh, international drama and wars, and, and, and China could see that and moved ahead. Uh, and so, you know, Trump coming in and pushing back, uh, they deserve some credit for that. Uh, I, I've got some problems with some of the ways they've done it, but... Um, it has. It's woken up China now to compete with us and to just you know to decouple is not the right word to get off any dependence on America. And we got to be aware that that that's what China's doing, and we got to figure out how our companies, um, you know, how they continue to prosper globally and still deal with with China. Mm. Well, stay tuned. 2020, I'm sure, has uh, multiple chapters in store for us. And um, I, I really appreciate you taking time out. All the best, my friend. Take care. That was my conversation with Jim McGregor, author, corporate advisor, and longtime China watcher. It's hard not to feel a little depressed about the state of U.S.-China relations. China's exploitation of the rules of trade and U.S. incompetencies in shaping a policy to fit the profile of the mainland's newfound power are dual culprits in a growing geopolitical saga. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, we take a look at what's at risk if the two superpowers don't get it right. As Jim points out in our conversation, there are a myriad of unintended consequences sparked by the recent U.S.-China trade war. In hindsight, the Trump administration's decision to wield tariffs to gain Chinese concessions actually achieved very little. The ramifications of this one-dimensional approach, however, are far-reaching. Three come to mind. First, U.S. businesses with an emphasis on manufacturing were quick to make adjustments. Companies weren't waiting around until the two countries kissed and made up. At the first sign of trouble in U.S.-China trade relations, decisions were made to shift supply chains and manufacturing hubs to other parts of Asia. Vietnam, India, the Philippines, and Indonesia have all been big beneficiaries. Second, U.S. competitors stepped up. Trump's decision to leave the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement did nothing to help U.S. businesses and everything to assist U.S. competitors in Europe, Asia, and Australia. They stepped up their China operations to fill the gap. Third, China's soft power prospects grew. While the U.S. turned its back on globalization, maligned immigrants, and spoke of America first, China made new and notable diplomatic gains, building bridges to countries smarting from American reversal. If someone was keeping score on who's faring better as the U.S.-China Cold War plays itself out, the scales would have to tip in China's favor. This isn't to downplay the country's many structural and political challenges, for there are many. But there is evidence of China being in a pole position to re-globalize trade and advocate for greater global collaboration. How it shows up in 2020 on issues like climate change, market liberalization, and technology leadership will no doubt influence the way the rest of the world sees China. Of course, all good intentions could be for naught if the coronavirus has its way. Nothing like a global pandemic to shut down the levers of international commerce and trade. That's it for this week's episode of Inside Asia. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Like it or not, China looms large in 2020. And as we've seen with the coronavirus, what happens in China doesn't necessarily stay in China. This epidemic gives a whole new meaning to China going global. What's your prognosis for China in 2020? Let us know. React to this podcast, leave a comment, or connect with us on LinkedIn. We want to know what you think. 
If you aren't already a listener, please subscribe by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. You can also download any or all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Thank you.